Now, see, my feng shui has been all messed up today anyway. It has. Because my Sunday, we, normally I get out of here and go home. And, man, I've been running ever since, so, since we got out of here today. So, it's all right. The Lord's still in control. Let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to pick it up where we left off at. We're going to look at verses 22 and 23 again as we get a running start. Paul says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness. Remember back in Matthew 12, it says, Then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And, of course, Jesus answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but there will no sign be given unto it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so the sign of the resurrection, I think we covered that pretty much in depth last time when we were looking at it. That's the only sign that Jesus said that would be giving, and it's the best one that there is because it's the hardest one to get around when it comes to proof when you look at the book of Acts, and we went through it, he says, you know, that uh, they were proclaiming the gospel by many infallible proofs. And, of course, the one that's the most infallible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said, we preach Christ and him crucified. The image of the anointed ones is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it is to this day. And why is that? Because they really expected Jesus to come back as a conquering hero. When you look at the book of Acts, and you see the disciples when Jesus shows up again after his resurrection. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? They still didn't get it. The Jews were still looking for him to come in and wipe out the Romans and to take over and to, to establish Jewish rule. They still didn't get it. Jesus had even told Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So it was a stumbling block to them because they, they don't understand and a lot of people, I've had people ask me, why is it that so many Jews, you know, they just, they just don't believe in Jesus Christ? Well, no, they do believe in the Messiah. They just don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because he was a suffering king, you know. He was a suffering prophet. And they stumble at it. The Greeks, on the other hand, they looked after wisdom. And so when we, studied, when we started this study, I pointed out to you that, you know, the Corinthian church, or, or not even the church, but just the Corinthian people in general, loved to listen to philosophy. Like, kind of like a lot of people today. They love philosophy. They love listening to oration. People are very good at speaking. They wanted to hear that articulation, you know, and make me feel good. Nice and flowery. That's the way they liked it. So the Greeks seeked after wisdom. They liked that stuff. But look at what he says in verse 20. He says, For, but unto them which are called. If you're taking notes, you need to make note of that. Unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. This is where it gets a little interesting. 
Notice Paul just said that the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews, a stumbling block under the Greeks' foolishness. In verse 24, the apostle says, but unto them which are called. The word in the Greek means appointed. Those who are appointed. When we get to the issues of the election of God's people, I'm always going to drive it home. I'm going to hammer it. Because it's not so often, and people so often don't understand that God chooses. You are elected. This is why he uses the term throughout the Word of God. The election, the called. All things work together. You know that verse, right, in Hebrews? Nobody ever quotes it properly, but they always do. All things work together, Doug, you know, for the good of them who love the Lord. Yes, keep going. All things work together for, to, for the good of them who love the Lord to the called according to his purpose. All things work together if you are the called, if you are the appointed, if you are chosen. People have a hard time with that sometimes. You're saying God chooses? No, Jesus said God chooses. He even told his disciples, I always thought that was saying, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. It's exactly what he said. The election of God is important that you understand that. God has chosen you. And he's chosen you based upon his foreknowledge. And this is where it really gets good. Why? Because you realize that every rotten thing that you've ever done, ever thought, are doing, or ever will do, God knew beforehand. And he chose you anyway. Now, I, I was an employer for many years. And I had many people sit across my desk and many people I hired and many people I did not, based upon what that paper said. And based upon sometimes about what I heard from other people. Now, you can say that's right or you can say it's wrong, but that's the way employers are. Am I right, Tom? I'm right. You were an employer, right? Yes, he was. So... We always hire based upon what we know. But God knows everything about us, and he chose you anyway. That's the foreknowledge of God. That's the election. And it's important that you understand that, that God chooses based upon his foreknowledge. Now, having said that, some people might you know, begin to go, well, I am chosen. God picked me. <laughs> and I'm glad that God chooses because I'm just glad he chose me. And I'm sure you, he's glad you, you, he chose you. But lest, that you, lest you start thinking a little highly of yourself, what does Paul say? Paul goes on, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Hmm. That's a humbling statement. Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now we're living in a time when people put a lot of stock in those things, in the mighty, in the noble, in the wisdom of the world. They put a lot of stock into it. And it leads them into enormous kinds of error. But God has always chosen the foolish things of the world. You look at Philippians chapter 3, you can turn there if you will, and, and uh, I'm going to start in verses 4. And we're talking about the issue of how 
we are to view the flesh, that is, the things of this world, the things that we claim are accolades, things that, you know, most people put a lot of stock in. What was the apostles' view of it? Here's what Paul wrote. He says, though I might have also confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things, but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. Some of your Bibles probably say refuge, that's a nicer way of putting it. I like the way Paul puts it. That I may win Christ, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might obtain the resurrection of the dead. That's what Paul thought about it. He put no stock in the things that most people put stock in. He put no, thing, no, no trust in it. Here was a man who was extremely educated. He had sat at the feet of Gamma He was great, grew up there. Highly respected. He was on the Sanhedrin Council. People looked up to him. He had so much favor with them that when it came time to persecute the church, they had given him letters and given him authority to arrest whoever he found and to bring them back bound unto Jerusalem to be tried. And some of them were put to death, as we know. But he said, those things that I counted as gain at one time, I count them as loss and count them but done. That I might know Christ and the, and, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. That's how Paul looked at it. Now look at verse 27. He says, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. For God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world... The things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. We need to realize, and a lot of people don't, that God will not share his glory with anyone. He won't do it. He will not allow man to take credit for something that only he can do. He will not allow us to detract anything from his son. And I don't blame him because Jesus is worthy. He's glorious. Everything he has done, he has done on your behalf. You know, he lived that perfect life for you, died a perfect death for you, rose a perfect resurrection for you, sat at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. You know, Paul says when we look at that and we say God is for me, who could be against us? Jesus is worthy. He is absolutely worthy of everything. He has given all and he has extended and imputed all to you by faith alone. He's worthy. And God will not allow anything to glory. Even when you go back to the Old Testament, and I'll throw this one in for free, and you begin to look at the establishment of the, of the temple. In the wilderness, when they would build the altar, 
they were to gather stones from the ground and they were simply to build that altar without using chisel or hammer or any type of man-made tool. They weren't allowed to do it. Why? God only wanted man-made or God-made materials being used. He didn't want man's hand in it. He doesn't want our hand in it. So often we can see ourselves as co-workers, you see. Now we have co-workers with each other in the kingdom of God. But we are not co-workers with God. There is no such thing. God has done the work. Jesus has completed. You remember when he was on the cross, right? What was the last thing Jesus said? He said, Telestai, it is finished. Paid in full is what it means. It doesn't say to be continued. He said it is finished. It is complete. All that is necessary for us to stand before a holy God, Jesus took care of. God will not allow that. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. I appreciate this verse because it means good news for you and me. God's chosen the foolish things of the world. I can honestly tell you, of all the things that God has done in my life, and all the things that the Lord has ever done for me, I didn't deserve any of it. I have no idea how things happened for me. I remember being at, at Elcor Laboratories, and I was the head cheese, for lack of a better description. And I had a fellow who I had come to know, and he come to me, and he was opening up a fairly large business there in town. And he came up to my office, and he says, would you do me a favor? He handed me this big booklet, you know, it was all nicely done. I said, what's this? He said, this is my business plan. And I said, and you're handing me this for what? He goes, I want you to give me your opinion on this. And I started laughing. And I said, brother, I wouldn't know the first thing about it. He, and he just looked around. He goes, what are you talking about? Look at what you have. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, look at what the Lord has, has put me in charge of. See, you got it wrong. You think that I did this. I wouldn't know the first thing about running a business. We were successful because of what the Lord did. I was just following. And I mean that. I wasn't trying to sound humble. It was a fact. I should not have been where I was. Not in my opinion, but there I was, and people mistook it. And if you're foolish, and when they begin to pat you on the back and to say, oh, look at what you have done, and you start rubbing your fingers and going, yeah, I guess I am a self-made man. Watch yourself. You're not a self-made man. All that we have, any good and pleasurable gift comes down from the Father of lights. It's from God. It's from Jesus Christ. He, he has given us all things. And we're not to glory in those things. That's glory in the flesh. We don't want to do that. Look at verse 30. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In my note, I simply put Christ alone, solo Christos, Christ alone. How simple is it to live your life that way? You know, today people worry and strive and struggle about so many things, and they try to make so many things happen. How much easier it is, gang, to just simply let go and let God, realizing that He is sovereign, over all things, he has chosen you, he is in control. If he is Lord of all, then he is the one leading. Simply follow. It makes life so much simpler. 
So many times I've had people over the years come to me and go, oh, brother, I've got this opportunity. Will you pray for me? Well, yeah, I'll pray for you. Well, if it doesn't go through, I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, well, that's the wrong prayer. You know, the right prayer is, Lord, I will be done. Because I've, I've found myself so many times, and I'm sure you have too, in situations where I thought that this would be great if this happened. Wouldn't this be good? Man, I could do a lot of good for the Jesus if, you know, if I hit the lottery. <laughs> I've actually had people say that. Yeah? Man, if I hit the lottery, I would. No, you wouldn't do it. It, would, it wouldn't be good. But it's so much better to go, Lord, you know, here, here's, here's my idea. Because a lot of times when we pray, we're looking for God's stamp of approval upon what we want to do for him. We're better off if we pray the prayer that Jesus did, and that is, thy will be done. You know, I just want to do whatever God wants me to do. And whether that's scrubbing a toilet, or whether that's pastoring, or whether that's cutting the grass, or whether that's doing whatever. Do whatever your hand finds to do. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul would say. But Jesus is unto us. We are in him by God. And he is unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's all those things to you by faith alone. That's the beauty of solo Christos. That one solace, if you can get that one and get your hands around it, man, it'll free you. It'll set you free because Jesus has done it all. You know, when you look back at John Wesley and his brother, I'm not picking on him. On this one particular issue, they simply had it wrong. They had a right idea. They had a wrong way of getting it. Because what John Wesley believed was that it was possible for a Christian to become perfect. We're going to be talking about this here in a minute. He believed in Christian perfection. Now, what did he mean by that? He believed that a man at some point in his life could obtain to a place where he no longer sinned. The problem is he didn't read 1 John. <laughs> because in 1 John chapter 1, he says, if any man says he has no sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. Mm. But yet, Paul's going to use those very words here in just a few minutes that Jesus Christ has. He has made us perfect. And we are perfect in Him. Why? Because it's, it's Jesus' perfection that's been imputed to you by righteousness. That's what it is. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness, our justification, our sanctification. He's all those things to us. That, look at verse 31, according it is written... He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Because when you accept that everything, be it spiritual or physical, that you have is all from Christ, well, that's the only thing you have to glory in. Because anything less than that is you glorying in something that you have done. And that's not a good place to be. It just isn't. And we're warned, don't do that. If any man glories, he says, let him glory in the Lord, because Jesus is worthy. Look at chapter 2. And I, brethren, Paul says, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, 
but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should stand in the wisdom, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul had not come to the Corinthians and tried to establish them with slick speeches. He didn't do it. I think sometimes, you know, those of us who are students of the Bible and we've been reading for a long time, we tend to think of Paul the Apostle because we read his letters. Of even Peter said, of which some things are hard to be understood. But we kind of, I know, you know, I, I, I'm looking forward to meeting him. I really am because I think Paul's just an amazing guy. And so it's hard for me to imagine that when he spoke, he did not speak excellently. That he wasn't a good orator. And I'm not sure that he wasn't, but when he came to these people, he knew that they put stock in that, you see. He knew that the Corinthians were a type of people that they loved to listen to flowery speeches and people who were excellent at it. And so when he came to them and he began to preach unto them the gospel of Jesus Christ, he didn't do it by making slick speeches, by appealing to their idolization of oratory. He spoke to them, I think, in everyday lingo, if you will. He got down to the nitty-gritty, to the on the dirt level, where the pedal meets the, you know, where, where the pedal metal beats the pedal or whatever it is. But that's where he was at. I can't even get that one right. But that's where he got it at. He didn't want to them because he didn't want them to put stock in the way that he spoke. See, I'm proving I, I didn't come with excellent speech either. So, but he didn't want them that. Because why? Because when people put their stock in it, and they begin to give credit to that and not to Christ. Hmm. He said when he came to them, he was in weakness and much trembling. I think it's helpful to know that when Paul finally made it to Corinth, he'd actually been through the proverbial mill. He had really been through quite a bit. Most of you will recall that when he was in Galatia, he was determined to go to Asia and the Spirit forbade him. And, of course, Paul had fallen deathly ill there, and he couldn't do anything. He couldn't go anywhere. And while he was in bed, he had that dream, and he saw that man from Macedonia saying, come over here hither and help us. And so he went, went to Macedonia, and he headed there. And, of course, he wound up in Philippi. And as he was preaching, you remember, he was arrested there. He was incarcerated. Then he was flogged, you know, beaten. And, of course, this is where the Lord came at midnight and, and ministered to him. And opened the doors of the change, remember? And, of course, the Philippian jailer got saved. And there was some good stuff that happened. But nonetheless, he wound up, he was pretty, pretty persecuted there. Paul winds up from there. Of course, he winds up in Thessalonica. And once again, you know, he, he starts a riot there. Because when Paul spoke, either revival or riot happened. Most of the time, riot. And a lot of, you know, sometimes he, a revival happened. But he, you know, he caused a riot there. So when he, by the time he gets there... And of course, I didn't even mention when he was, then he went to Mars Hill. Remember when he was on Mars Hill, then people began to ridicule him there. And so by the time he gets to Corinthians, I mean, he's been through the mill. And he says, and when I came to you, I came to you, you know, in fear and trembling. He'd been through it. Paul was not trying to win the Corinthians by using enticing words of man's wisdom. But in the demonstration of the spirit in power, if you take a note, you need to make note of that. I found in ministry, in the teaching ministry, that often from the pulpit 
and when a person is teaching or when they're preaching, that there are utilizations of gifts of the Spirit that are in operation at that moment, and a lot of times unbeknownst to even to the teacher. The gift of prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, those things. I remember, and this has happened many times, I don't make it a habit to listen to my own radio shows. I've been on radio for years, years and years and years. And was syndicated for many years, but every now and then, when I'm in the car, you know, uh, I have had the opportunity, and the show would come on. And so just for, you know, I'd turn it up, give it a listen. And I have to admit, I have found times when it was edifying. And I would listen and go, wow, and I told my wife, I was like, man, that's some good preaching there, buddy. You know, this is like... Not because it was me. I, you know, listen, I want you to get this. Not because it was me. Because I know that sounds, sounds arrogant. It's not what I meant. But I didn't remember even saying half of what I said. I didn't remember. And I was actually enlightened by my own preaching. Because I didn't remember. Well, how do you... Because it wasn't in my notes. You see. I've heard my wife share with people because my wife is my dictator. She is. She's very fast at typing. Could be quicker. <laughs> Transcripting. And we do a lot of dictation. So a lot of times when, by the time I start preaching, she knows this sermon probably better than I do. And one of the things that she's always said, she goes, it's always amazing. She goes, I always know when the Holy Spirit takes over because your eyes go off of your notes and you begin to say things that I know are not on the page. That's what Paul was delivering to these guys. He says, when I, when I came, I didn't come with excellency of speech. I wasn't trying to impress you with my oratory skill. But in the demonstration of the power and of the Spirit. That's what it was. So that people would go, wow. That, well, that had to be the Lord, you see. So often... You know, you can, I, well, let me, give, let me give you an illustration. I remember all the guys that used to work with me uh, in the ministry at Calvary Chapel. Most of them were all highly educated, highly educated. I always loved Todd Shiplet. Now, you've heard me talk about him a lot. I love that kid. I still do. Mathematician, physicist. You know, he was an atheist at one time. I led him to the Lord. He became one of my assistant pastors for many years. And Todd always had all these, you'd go into his, uh, office over at the laboratory, he had all his diplomas and all his accolades hanging on the wall, you know. And I remember him one time, and we were having a discussion, and he said, Doug, you ought to get your, you ought to get your PhD. I said, why? He goes, well, just don't you think that, you know, sometimes, you know, don't you think people might give more credence to you? And I started laughing. I said, well, you think having letters after you? I said, no, son, listen to me. I said, when I want to know physics, who do I come to? Well, you come to me. Well, yeah, why? Because of that piece of paper on the wall. It says, you know physics. If I want to know science, I come to you. I said, but when you're wanting to ask a question about the Bible, who do you come to? He said, well, I come to you. I said, why? He said, because I've been studying with you for years, and as I go through the scriptures, I find that you're right. I said, well, I'm not trying to be right. I'm just trying to be faithful. 
I said, my only point is, I would rather have somebody listen to me and think I have a PhD than to point to a piece of paper and say, that's why he knows what he knows. See, this is what they said about Jesus when they heard Jesus and Jesus came to him. They said, how knoweth this man letters, seeing he's never learned? And even the disciples, you remember in the book of Acts, when they appeared, they said, these men are ignorant men. What they meant was they were unlearned, as according to their standard anyway. But yet they took note that they had been with Jesus. Why? Because their speech was with the demonstration of spirit and the power of God. That people's faith, the ones who heard them, that their faith would be in Christ based upon the spirit and the power of God. Not upon an accolade, not upon a diploma. Paul said, you see your calling, brethren. How not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But yet within Christendom, and it's always been a baffling thing to me. And even in Calvary Chapel, in our denomination, I think we fell prey to that. In that I saw many pastors, you know, and I won't mention their names in case they're listening to me. And I know them. Some of them pastor enormous churches. One that I'm thinking of, and, and a great guy, love him to death, has a church of 12,000 people. Well, that's a fairly, that's a little, you know, tiny little thing, 12,000. But here's a guy who graduated from high school. And he was pastoring a church of 12,000 when he had a high school diploma. But then he wanted to go back to college, which is fine. It's not an issue. And he did. So while he was pastoring over all those years, he wound up with a Ph.D. Now he's, you know, Dr. So-and-so. But what good did it do him? Here's my point. My point is, is that what the Holy Spirit did anyway, he didn't add anything to it. I mean, so what was the Ph.D. for? Certainly wasn't to make people put credence in what he said because they already did, you see. It's hard to have a church of 12,000 people when people don't listen to you. I mean, sure they were listening to him. They didn't care. Because before, what he was doing was in the power and in the Spirit of God. So I've just often found that strange, you know, that we put, we put so much stock in that. And we really shouldn't. Paul says when he came, he said, I didn't come with excellency of speech, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's much better that way. That's why we need to be always yielded to the Holy Spirit. That's why every time before we teach and before we go into the Word of God, we always pray for the leading of the Holy Spirit. We pray for wisdom, that God would lead us, that the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth. It's Him that we want to be in subjection to. So that the Spirit and the power is actually being able to flow. Look at verse 6. He says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Take a note, make note of that. We speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Some of your Bibles might use the word mature. I like the word perfect. And in the Greek, that's what it means. It also means mature, but it means perfect. He says, I, we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor the princes of this world that come to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they knew it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. True wisdom is the wisdom of God by which we teach them that are perfect. 
I made note of it. I said, you know, I've heard a million times, Christians, and most of the time in radio, we call it a disclaimer. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. How many times have you ever heard that? I actually, I've seen t-shirts. I'm just a Christian. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. If I had a nickel for every time I heard a Christian say, I'd be a rich man. I'm not perfect. When the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says in Christ, you are perfect. And everybody's thinking, but Doug, I, I got a mirror. And I know me. I understand that. But what does the word of God say? Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. I just want you to get this and to get your fingers around it, whether you're sitting here on Facebook or listening to me on radio. I want you to get this tonight. I want you to understand how it is that God sees you, if you are indeed in Christ. That's the only stipulation. Are you in Christ? Paul the Apostle will later ask the Corinthians, search yourselves, brethren, whether you be in the faith. But if you are, if you are a child of God, look what Paul says. Here in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 1. He says, for the law, having a shadow of things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, never means what, gang? Never. Can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. So what's he saying? He's going, look, blood of bulls and blood of goats, he's going to say, they did it every year, sometimes every day, the same sacrifice, and it could never make a person perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to have been offered? Question mark, you see that? Well, sure they would have been. If it could have made you perfect, they would have never offered them anymore, but it didn't. Because that the worshipers once purged, ah, man, I love this chapter, once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Remember in the Hebrew, when they would do a sacrifice, it was to kofar, it was to cover, but it could never take it away. Wherefore, he says, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and offerings for sins thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second by the which will. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool, look, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that 
are sanctified. And my friend, if you are in Jesus Christ, that is you. He has perfected forever, forever, those who are sanctified. That's why Jesus is worthy. That's why he is so glorious. That's why we are so thankful. That's why every Sunday morning when we come as a gathering, we have a reason to praise the risen Savior. Why? Because he lived for us. Everything that I could not do on my own, he has done for me vicariously and imputed that to me. Thank God. The righteous, he says, stumble. A righteous man will stumble seven times, yet he will rise again. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. And though he fall, he will not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Man, I'm thankful for Jesus Christ. I cling to him. All that he has done on our behalf, he is worthy, my friends. Look at verse 9. He says, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, nor, or neither has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for them that love him. This is a very misquoted verse in the Bible and misunderstood. So often I've heard this quoted, and Christians will quote it and go, well, you know, I have not seen or ear heard or is not in our You know, we just don't really know, Doug, all the things that God, you know, God's got. That's not what he's saying here, kids. <laughs> it's not. What Paul is saying is that the world doesn't understand the things that God has prepared for them that love him. They don't get it. Their eye hath not seen. Their ear has not heard. It has not entered into the heart of an unregenerated man the things that the Lord has prepared for them that love him. And if you're in Christ, that's you. They have no idea what God has prepared for you. But God, verse 10, hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. He has revealed those to us. How does he do that, Doug? Well, mostly to me, he does it by his spirit through his word. We know exactly what's in store for us. We know all that God has done by Jesus Christ. We know what is being prepared. You know, we talked a little bit about it last week when I, I, I gave you a quote by Keith Green. When he was a young man. and Of course, he was a young man when he went home to be with the Lord. But early in his ministry... You know, he was talking about the issue of creation. And he said, you know, the Lord says he, six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Lo, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will return again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you might be also. Keith Green young preacher at that time said, took God six days to make the heavens and the earth. Jesus has been gone 2,000 years working on your home. In comparison, this earth has got to be a garbage can compared to what God has prepared for us. And we know what it is and what it will be like because we have read the book of Revelation. We know what heaven is going to be like. But I've had people ask me many times, Doug, what, what do you think heaven will be like? I said, well, I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said, that where I am, there you might be also. Wherever he's at, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to be. 
Because wherever he's at, that will be heaven for me. Because he has done everything for me. And I will always be grateful to him. He's worthy of all that we could lay at his feet. Everything. There's none like our Lord. The world doesn't get it, gang. They don't understand it. They never will. They don't have the capacity. Why? Look at verse 11. For what a man knoweth the things of a man except the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely, and if you take a note, underline that, that are freely given to us of God. We know by the Spirit the things that are freely given to us. God has given us the Spirit every born-again believer. And he's given us the Spirit of God in order to teach us the things that God has freely given to us. All that we have. You know, we remember we're called joint heirs with Christ. So all that's his is yours. That's an amazing thing. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus said, but the comforter, in the Greek, that's the word paraclete, one who walks alongside which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring, you, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So the paraclete, the one who walks alongside, he guides us and teaches us and leads us into all truth, which is his word. And he always glorifies Jesus Christ. He always does that. Jesus even said, when he has come, he will glorify me. Verse 13, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that's an unregenerated person, gang, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, those who do not know the Lord, cannot accept the things of the Spirit. They can't even know them, it says. They don't have the capacity. And this is why it's so frustrating. Sometimes I've heard people say, man, I, you know, I've tried witnessing to some people and they just act like they don't get it. They don't want it, whatever. And I'm going, you're trying. You're, you're talking to somebody who, who does not have the capacity to know. You know, Jesus, there's a very interesting passage in the Bible. Where we've been talking a little bit about the issue of election. Now listen, there are those who cling to the fact of free will, and that's okay. There are those who cling to just the sovereignty of God, and that's okay. I was talking to a guy the other day, and he says, well, Doug, where do you stand on that? And I said, what do you mean? Well, do you believe in sovereignty? Do you believe in free will? And I says, well, that's an interesting question. I believe what the Bible teaches. And I don't take a side in that. And here's what I mean. If I had to pick a side, and I don't, but if I did, I would always pick the side of sovereignty. Why? Because I can show you more scriptures for it than I can against it. Howbeit, is there free will? Well, there would appear to be. Jonathan Edwards wrote a great book on it, if you want to read it. He wrote it back in the 1700s on the issue of free will. There's arguments for it. There's arguments against it. Is God sovereign? 
Absolutely. Does man have free will? That's a good question. That's a good question. Because when you read the Bible, and we see it is by the faith of Jesus Christ, so often it's retranslated in other versions. It'll say faith in Jesus Christ. But in the original Greek, it says the faith of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, let me give you one from the book of Ephesians. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I remember Pastor Chuck used to say that free will runs on this track. Sovereignty runs on this track. They're like two parallel trains. And if you try to intersect them at any point, you will have a train wreck. <laughs> I've also heard it explained that sovereignty is like one plane flying this way, and free will is another plane flying in the same direction, and they disappear behind a cloud somewhere. And where do they intersect? I don't know. Now listen, it's not one of those issues that we would ever want to separate over. Howbeit the scriptures are very clear in certain things. And that is as God does choose. And Jesus said, no man can come to me except what? The Spirit draw him. And so often when we're speaking, we get frustrated when people don't seem to get it. Why is that? Well, Paul says a natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, but he says neither can he know them. Now that's an interesting statement. One needs to be contemplated. Why? Because if he said by the Spirit of God, why? Because all Scripture is given by Theonustos, the birth of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration. So Paul, when he spoke, was speaking by inspiration. But when he says, no, you know, as a natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. Question, how could he say that if it were ever possible for him to know? That's an interesting question. I'm not saying I know the answer to it. But I think it's interesting to ponder that Paul said it. So, is God sovereign? Absolutely. Is there free will? Maybe. Do people come to Christ? Yes, they do. Was that their will or was that God's will? Well, I had a guy tell me one time when I gave my testimony, I said it, I came to the Lord at you know, 13 when I was at a big tent revival in California. My life didn't show it. I won't get into much of it. Uh, let's just say that by the time I was 22, I threw the towel in. When I rededicated my life to the Lord and I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, nothing's been the same since. Let's put it that way. I had a kid come up to me later on. He goes, well, let me ask you a question. Were you saved when you were 13 then? If your life didn't look right, and what we mean by that, I was wallowing in sin. If it didn't look right, were you saved? And I said, listen to me. I know not, <laughs> nor am I going to try to determine where I was at at any one given point. Because my relationship with Jesus Christ is a present day situation. And I can only tell you what it is today. And what it is today is I'm clinging to all that Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. I put no stock in my flesh. I do not give credit to anything that I have done, but all that what my Savior has done. And it's where my present situation is with the Lord that is being determinative of where my eternity will be. Not on a past experience. So often we can look at a past experience and go, oh, you know, back when I gave myself to Jesus. Back in 1961. That was a great day. Well, boy, if your experience with Jesus is a past experience, that might be a problem. 
It needs to be a present experience. Paul is going to start talking here very soon about the issue of carnality within the body of Christ. And is it possible to be a carnal Christian? And evidently it is, because Paul will say that. But that issue of sovereignty, you know, it's one that needs to be thought about. And many have. Keep it in mind, that, that discussion has been going on ever since the Lord left. Been great books and great preachers on both sides of the, of the aisle. And I love them both. I told a young man, I said, you know what? Pick a side you want to argue. I'll take the other side. Because I can. Because they both have great, great verses to back it up. Which one's right? Now let me throw this at you. Something to think about. In science, and I, and I do agree with much science. I can't help it. That's my background. We have this thing called cognitive dissonance. It's not a good thing. Some of you might know what that means. And what a cognitive dissonance is, is when you hold two truths that are contradictory, but you think that they're both true. Well, there's a problem with that. Two things that are contradictory cannot both be true. They can both be wrong. But they cannot both be true. That's a problem. <laughs> so when you're thinking about those things and you're contemplating and you're studying, keep it in mind, you can't hold contradictory truths and say that they're both true. You can say that they're both wrong, but you can't say they're both true. Now you can, but you will have what we call a cognitive dissonance. And some people are fine living with cognitive dissonance. <laughs> they are, believe me. They have no idea that they have it. It's just like, let me give you one. When I was a kid, as an illustration, I grew up in the public school system. I also grew up around parents who believed in God. I was told that we came from Adam and Eve. I was also taught that we came from evolution. Now, somehow, in my little pea brain, when I was a kid, I had come to the conclusion that both of those were true. Now, that is a cognitive dissonance because they're both not true. One, they can both be wrong, but they can't both be true. But it wasn't until I came to Christ that I began to study, I realized how the fallacy of evolution, we won't get into that, but that's my point. So when you're studying these things, contemplate it, you know. And when you take a stand to the elimination of the other side, I think you're making a problem. You're causing a problem. There's nothing wrong with holding a position. I hold a position. But at the same time, we never want to take a position unless it's on the salvational issue. That's another story. I mean, we're not talking about salvational issues. We're talking about something that is a theological issue, sovereignty, and the free will of man. You know, We don't want to take a stand on this side to the elimination of the other because they might be right, but they might be. They're not both right, <laughs> but we'll all be in heaven. You understand what I'm saying? Don't, don't let it get you all boogered up, as I guess is what I'm saying. Let's finish this up real quick. Which things we speak also, not in the words of man's wisdom teaches, but in the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, for they are foolishness unto him, because they're spiritually discerned. Verse 15. But he that is spiritual, that's you if you're born again, judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And here's the last little piece for you. But we have the mind of Christ. Now think about that one just for a moment as we close. 
We have the mind of Christ. <laughs> Here a few years ago, back, back when I was still at Calvary Chapel, we had this little wristband. Everybody was wearing that wristband, that WW thing, you know, what would Jesus do? <laughs> and I used to jokingly say most people wouldn't have any idea. Because they didn't read their Bible. What would Jesus do? I don't know. It's better to walk with Jesus daily. That's the way I started looking at it. Walk with Jesus daily. That made better sense, you know. But he says we have the mind of Christ. And when you think about all that Jesus has done for you and what he's imputed to you, because that's what it is. It's imputation. Never forget that. It's a great word. We don't want to lose that one. It's, it's in the Bible many times. Look it up. Imputation. And because he's imputed that to you, because you have the Spirit of God in you, he says, we have the mind of Christ. Now, we're going to look at the next two chapters. And Paul's really going to be dabbling into the issue of their carnality and how they really weren't using what was available to them, the mind of Christ. Because what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? We're going to look at that more in depth next time. Father, we love you. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. Father, we thank you for all that he has done on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that it's not our flesh that we glory in. It's got nothing to do with our works, not even our obedience, Lord Father, but it's all about you. And it's all about what you've done. And you've done it on our behalf. And we thank you, Lord Father, that even the faith that we have was a gift from you, that you might draw us unto yourself. Lord, I pray that you would be with those who will hear this message, that they would be encouraged and to glorify you in all that they see and hear. And Lord, they would, and if they need to come to you, Lord Father, I pray that you would, by the Spirit, draw them, that they might come to know you and your fullness. We love you so much. We thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.